Welcome to Stacy on the Right, the podcast brought to you by FamilyVisionMedia.org and my book, Eternally Cancel Proof. <laughs> Buy it at Amazon.com. So excited to have with us today an expert on a lot of things that are really important to us right now, specifically pertaining to policy, dealing with children and family services. We have Andrew Brown, Senior Fellow at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Andrew, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Stacey. I'm so glad that you're here because you have this, it's an, an amazing op-ed where you go through a number of different issues with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and their missteps and unforced errors during the COVID-19 pandemic. And for some of us, this feels like, okay, you know, we've kind of moved on from it. But in many states across the country, children are still forced to wear masks in order to go to school. Um, so you have written about this. Tell us, why did you decide to write this op-ed? Yeah, and one of the things that came out of the pandemic that I think was a positive was it reminded folks that we have these very powerful bureaucratic agencies that have an immense amount of authority over our daily lives. And the CDC is just one example of how an unelected bureaucracy can make decisions that completely disrupt the lives of everyday Americans. Um, and from my angle, as somebody who has spent his career in the child welfare space and focuses on those issues related to child protective services and foster care, this really reminded me of the immense power that child protective services has on a daily basis, not even in an emergency situation um, like with the COVID-19 pandemic, but on a day-to-day -day basis, the child protective services system has some of the most terrible powers that a state agency can take against its citizens, and that's namely the ability to separate children from their families forever in certain cases. So that's frightening. I know a lot of parents were kind of consumed with the idea that their children who were school age, and, and for us, it was college age kids, but it was still, you know, finding a place to put a laptop that was quiet so you can access your classes online. But for people with smaller children, and it really, it spanned the gamut. If you had a 17-year-old or if you had a two-year-old or a four-year-old, there was still, it was finding space for them to do their learning and then supervising them because we learned that remote learning means you have to manage a 16 or 17 or 18-year-old. You really still have to manage them. The college student, not so much, but your, your high schooler. We lost millions of kids during the pandemic who just dropped off of the educational roles forever because they had no one to manage them. And the teachers were also kind of overwhelmed and disconnected uh, in addition to everything else that was going on. Right. The developmental impact on kids, I think we're starting to see some research come in on what the pandemic actually did to child development, both in terms of learning loss as well as socialization, being isolated for so long. Um, and I think we're going to continue to see the ramifications of many of these lockdown decisions and some of the really stringent requirements that states put on folks um, in the years to come. One of the really interesting things, and I'm glad you brought up schooling, uh, that kind of highlights this point of the power of child protection agencies, especially to surveil and interfere with families. Um, one of the stories we highlight in the op-ed is in New York City, there were families and they were predominantly low-income families who would get the knock at the door from CPS because their kid hadn't logged in to the iPad 
one day um, to get their remote learning. In a lot of these cases, it was because the family didn't have access to the internet or you know, they had other um, complications that was prohibiting their kids from attending school, but they get investigated for educational neglect because their kid isn't logged in to the iPad that the school sent home after they kicked everybody out of the classroom. So the the thing that was really, to me, that is harmful in that is that you could have had every good intention, you know, but you're living in poverty and you don't have an iPad or you have an iPad, but it didn't have the right updates because that that's that's also a huge issue that we don't even talk about. Um, I'm married to someone who's in technology. So when my stuff doesn't work, I go to him and I hand it over and say, can you fix this? And he fixes it. Also, our son now is able to do it. I'll just yell and he'll come in and go, what's what's going on? And I'm like, <laughs> I just point, can you fix this thing? And he'll 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 fix it. But most families don't have a tech guru or two in their household. And if you're living in poverty, you are not able to access. I mean, iPads are not cheap. Even the little tiny mini ones are a few hundred dollars. And then there's the service that they forced you to sign up for. The first year, you always have to have a monthly service plan. So you're always at the mercy of the expense of it. And I know in our municipality here, we do not have a big, uh, like, there's not a huge support system for giving every kid in low income schools an, an iPad or device because everyone already feels put out because we help subsidize cell phones and everything else. And so people are like, you know what, I'm tired of paying everything under the sun. And I think the worst part about it, the part that adds insult to injury to all of this is that in so many of these jurisdictions where kids fell off the rolls, didn't have the proper iPad, got visited by, you know, DCFS or whatever, they could have just been in school. Right, exactly. And I think that illustrates the perfect point. And again, it's why we wrote the op-ed, because so much of what occurred during the pandemic with these different bureaucracies really are examples of bigger problems. So in this issue with families struggling in poverty, not being able to access you know, the right technology so their kids can go to school and then get in the investigation. You know, that's a regular occurrence for low-income communities all across this country. When you look at the statistics of kids who go into the foster care system in the nation, the majority are going in for neglect. Physical and sexual abuse cases, those ones that unfortunately make the headlines and they're horrible and, you know, we absolutely need a child protection system to stop that horrible abuse of children that can occur and does occur, that's a small percentage of the overall cases. Here in Texas, where I live, about 75% of the kids who are in our foster care system are there for neglect-related reasons. And when you drill down on a lot of these cases, you see that poverty plays a very influential role in the family getting to the point where Child Protective Services knocked on their door. We actually did a statistical analysis that compared uh, neglect cases with child poverty rates in the state of Texas. So the way that we ran the study, um, we only looked at what we called pure neglect cases, meaning when you look at some of this data, you can see, okay, this was a case of neglect and physical abuse or neglect and sexual abuse. We threw out those cases that had multiple issues involved, and we only looked at cases that just said neglect. We were able to get that at county-level data, and we overlaid that county-level data with child poverty data. And what we found when we ran the statistical analysis was if you are a child living in one of the 25 poorest counties in Texas, 
you're statistically more likely to enter foster care because of a pure neglect case than a child who lives in one of the 25 wealthiest counties in Texas. So in a very real way, Texas is punishing families for being poor. Now, what's the solution there? The solution there is not more government programs and increasing the footprint of government. The solution is getting families connected to community resources, right? Those churches and the neighborhood nonprofits, those supportive networks and institutions of what we like to call civil society that really help people overcome little bumps in the road and difficulties in life. That's the key to preventing kids from going into foster care and even preventing cases that could rise to the level of abuse. It's that supportive community. And that's something that I think we've lost in this country in a lot of ways. We've ceded so much of that function to government that I'm hopeful that the lessons we learned from the pandemic will reignite this spirit of community uh, across the country that will enable us to better help and support our neighbors in need. So tell me what you feel like is the first step that we need to take. And and I'm talking about, you know, local municipalities, um, regular people who might be listening to this and saying, oh, um, you know, I didn't realize this was an issue. And because there's so many issues right now going on, people might might feel a little overwhelmed and think, well, what can I do? Um, So what, what would you recommend that people do to try to help this situation? That's a wonderful question. And step one is, look around your community and see who's already doing work. Now, if you belong to a local church, I'm sure your local church has you know, what my church calls mercy ministries, right, where we collect clothes or basic supplies. You know, even for families who hit really hard times, you know, people get a collection together um, and work with those families. Um, I know of churches where there are families who volunteer to even take kids in for like a week or two while the parents work through issues. Um, you know, in a previous life, I worked for a nonprofit that did that kind of work where you know, we would have families at churches who were background screened, they were trained, and they would volunteer to be caregivers for families who needed a little extra support. Um, and we had job fairs. We worked with churches to get people connected with employment so that they could make ends meet. Um, one of my favorite stories from when I was in that line of work, we had a homeless family. It was a mom, a dad, and a little toddler. Um, that came to one of the churches where we were having a job fair. And we knew they were on their way because the homeless shelter where they stayed the night before called us and asked if we had resources for them. And we said, yes, send them to the church. And so with the last few dollars that they had in their pockets, they bought a bus ticket and came down to this church where we were having a job fair. By the time they got there, we had already had a family that had been screened and were ready to volunteer to help take care of the toddler. there at the church, ready to meet them, made that connection. Mom and dad then went into the job fair. Both of them got hired on the spot. And within two months, they had secured an apartment and their child went back home to live with them. And all of this happened through a church and not through the state and not through the government. And this was a family that very well could have ended up on the Child Protective Services radar. Their kid could have ended up in foster care and potentially taken away from them forever. But because they had a community that they didn't know before this, but they're still part of to this day. It was that that turned this family's life around. And so I think the more people can find those opportunities in their own communities or or even start them, just little ways that you can come alongside a family in need and work with them um, through the difficulties in their lives. And, you know, I like to talk to pastors a lot and I say, "Your, your church does a really good job of doing foster care and doing adoption. 
are you doing a good job of helping that single mom before that child gets taken away from her and put into the system? Because that, I think, is where the church can really shine. Okay. And I agree with you 100% about the church being able to shine there. Um, I want to circle back to your op-ed for a quick sec here. And that is, you have the subheader. It says, we must never forget what we learned about the power of unchecked bureaucracy to micromanage our daily lives. So how does that unchecked bureaucracy and its power intersect with the government that actually manages and makes more abundant the poverty that certain parts of our society are living in? Yeah, that's that is a great question and I think, you know, obviously it comes down to complex fiscal policy decisions. You know, what are we subsidizing? Where are our tax dollars going? And all of these different things that government has been doing and that further encroachment into the daily lives of Americans that make it quite frankly harder to get jobs in a lot of communities and harder to access basic goods and services. We're seeing this problem with runaway inflation right now. And that's going to become a massive problem if it hasn't already become a massive problem for many of these communities uh, that I've been referencing, these low-income communities who have contact with the child welfare system. The harder it is to go to the grocery store and put food in the pantry, and the harder it is to make your rent because your cost of living is going up, or you know, in a town like Austin, where I live, property taxes are going through the roof and forcing families out of homes that they've lived in, in some cases, for generations. Um, it's these decisions that are made not just by the state or the federal government, but by your local uh, city council, um, especially around property taxes and the actual cost of living in the community where you've grown up and where you've worked. All of that plays into these issues. And I think people are waking up. COVID woke a lot of people up, especially parents. Um, and I think keeping that energy moving in the positive direction of saying, why are we allowing these different governmental entities and these unelected bureaucracies have so much say in how we live our daily lives? And the answer is, I don't really think people are opting in. <laughs> I think it's more like we woke up during COVID and realized that things were way out of whack. And by the time mm -hmm. we kind of got ourselves revved up to do anything about it, they were already on top of us. You know, you can't go to church. You can't. I, all I heard was can't, 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 can't. You can't do this. Right. You can't do that. And by the time we, you know, kind of started pushing back, they'd already gotten us to agree to lockdown. Right. We lost vigilance. Um, and then COVID was that catalyst where all of those, not even decisions, just lack of decisions on our part, just going about life and not really knowing what powers were being ceded to government, all of that came to a head. Um, and so I think it's, you know, we've got to learn the lesson that that's the price of not being vigilant uh, against an ever-expanding bureaucracy. So there is the other side of it where there were people and they're still out there. They're still out there on Twitter. I mostly read their thoughts on Twitter. They're like, we can't get too far away from the pandemic. We can't get too far away from it. What we really need to do is make sure that we have everything in place still. So when the numbers go back up, everyone's going to have to go back to masking and locking down because that's the only thing that works, which actually is demonstrably false. The masking and locking down only contributed to our economic failure and depression and a spike in suicides. We did not see a corresponding amount of, uh, you know, positive, provable impact from those policies. Yet there's a significant portion of our society that are just, they're almost dying to get back to it. 
yeah, fear is a powerful motivator. And, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, I definitely understand it. We didn't know what we were dealing with. It was this mystery. So, you know, I understand some of those decisions that were made just when we were trying to wrap our minds around what is this thing that's going on. But once we got that handle and we knew what worked and what didn't, unwinding that became incredibly difficult because it should come as no surprise that once government takes power, it's very hard to get it to give up the power. And that's something, again, back to the point about remaining vigilant. We've got to now work to unwind uh, a lot of the power that was taken at the federal, state, and local levels uh, as a result of COVID-19. Wow. So in the big scheme of things, what is the, the next step for these families that you're, because you interact and interface with these families um, in your work at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and you've dedicated your career to serving vulnerable children, strengthening families. You have a community-focused, liberty-minded, solution mindset. What do you want to see next? If you, I know this is like pie in the sky, but we still have to engage in this kind of thing because hope springs yeah. eternal, and it's also what keeps us getting up every day. If you could advise the Biden administration on this or the CDC on pandemic policy going forward, especially pertaining to children, what would you do? Yeah, one of the things that I would say, and again, my area of expertise is child welfare policy. I would really advise the Biden administration to keep up the focus on family strengthening and preservation that was started under the Trump administration. Um, during the Trump administration, Congress enacted something called the Family First Prevention Services Act. And that piece of legislation, in my mind, was one of the most significant pieces of legislation that was passed during the Trump years. And what that did was it created this culture shift in child welfare to move away from having the reaction being always remove to what can we do through local communities to strengthen families, to help keep families together through the public policy decisions that we make. Um, and they did it through different funding mechanisms and freeing up federal funds that go to foster care work. And previously, states could only use that money once a child had been removed from their family. So it actually incentivized removals. And we saw case after case after case of kids being removed and traumatized through removal who didn't need to be removed. Um, and so what Family First did was it allowed states to have a little more flexibility in the federal funds that they receive for foster care so that those funds could be used for services and programs that are designed to keep those families together and to prevent removal. I think that's a great thing that needs to be continued. Um, and it needs to be continued through local communities. One of the things that we're working on in Texas and that we've been champions of for years is decentralizing our state foster care agency and moving to a system that's not just run out of a central office in Austin, but it's a system that's run by the local communities where these kids and families actually live. Uh, we call it community-based care. And we're already seeing results in the, a few regions that are operating under the model. Um, they're getting better performance metrics than the old state-run bureaucracy, and it's because these communities have skin in the game. And they're working with all of the different resources. They know their strengths. They know their weaknesses. And folks are getting more involved in caring for the most vulnerable in their communities. And I think that really is that solution. People getting involved and taking ownership of what used to be something that communities led on. Child welfare for most of our history was private charity driven. It was church driven. And then it was only in, you know, 
the mid part of the 20th century, that government really took it over completely. Uh, so getting back to that sense of, no, this is our community. These are the families that live next door. These are the children that our kids go to school with. We're going to help them through the struggles that they're having. I think that's the key. It is. I agree with you. That is the key. It is such hard work, but it's worth it because those kids, if there is a support network out there that can help their families get through these difficult times, it makes all the difference to them remaining in school, continuing their education and not getting caught in the poverty trap because you have to have your high school diploma in America. You have to have that and you have to be able to get out into the world, even if you're just apprenticing or going out and working someplace and, you know, starting at the bottom rungs without your high school diploma, there's just, there's nothing you can do. And poverty is the, the number one competing force in the negative against kids completing their education and coming out with a high school diploma and, and a can do attitude. So uh, fighting the poverty and fighting the government's kind of the government and poverty go hand in hand in, in uh, today's America when it comes to the way we deal with people who are in poverty. We, we pull them into a system that it's almost impossible to escape from, and then we mire them generationally in it. Um, and it's it just, I, I think it's a travesty. It absolutely is. And again, it comes back to these incentives, right? Is the incentive to enroll as many people in the program as possible, or is the incentive get people the help that they need in the short term, and then get them into self-sufficiency and prosperity as quickly as possible? In my mind, it's that. Our entire welfare system needs to be restructured and reoriented toward getting people into self-sufficiency and prosperity as quickly as possible. And then that's what we judge the success of the program on, not how many people it served. Hmm. Well, you know, I have to say, um, and we, we frequently have your cohorts from Texas Public Policy Foundation on, and it's always a pleasure. I think today's conversation is a very, very important beginning to helping people to understand what went wrong during the pandemic and how we can avoid it in the future, but specifically how pandemic policy really hurt poverty-stricken families the most. Mm -hmm. And and that is just something that I've not heard a lot of conversation around. In fact, I think Middle class, working class, you know, those two two groups, we scream the loudest. <laughs> like, we, we can't stand pandemic policy. And small businesses got a lot of attention from Fox News and CNN and other places talking about how their businesses had been shut down and how they were losing. Also, landlords, um, everybody had a, a moment where they were like, this is hurting me. This is killing me. But the socioeconomically disadvantaged Americans kind of suffered in silence. And, and so you're giving a voice to that. And I really appreciate it, especially having an opinion piece over at Fox News. That's huge. A lot of people are now aware. Well, thank you very much. And you know, one of the things I'll let your listeners know about before we end is Texas Public Policy Foundation is working on these big ideas, especially around prosperity and uh, the social safety net reform. Uh, we are in we call it the Alliance for Opportunity. It's a project we're working on with an organization out of Georgia called the Georgia Center for Opportunity and the Pelican Institute out of Louisiana. It's these three organizations. Um, and we're combining our expertise and what we know works in our home states to really set a vision for prosperity for the future of this country and to address many of these perennial problems that we've discussed today. And you can learn more there um, on our website at texaspolicy.com. Yes, and I have a link to texaspolicy.com 
on the show notes for today's podcast. So if you're listening to this, never fear, you can just click through whenever you get to wherever you're uh, landing while you're listening to the podcast. I recommend you head over to the website. They have great information there. Um, they cover a lot more than just Texas public policy, <laughs> but but they are, uh, you know, a Texas organization that really you, you guys contribute to the conversation on many issues across the country. Really appreciate your time today. So glad that you could join me and talk about this important issue. Thank you so much. Andrew C. Brown. Thank you, sir. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you, too. All right. You can find out more at familyvisionmedia.org, where we have StreamYard podcasts that are posted there. And you can find out more about my book at stacyontheright.com. Thank you for being with us, and God bless.